Hello and welcome to episode 80 of the Free Movement Immigration Update podcast. My name is Colin Yeo and I'm joined by CJ McKinney as ever. This month we are covering the um, blog posts from August 2020. We are starting with the EU settlement scheme before turning to a couple of cases at the intersection of immigration law and family law. We've got um, a bit of a slowdown in the court system, as you will all have noticed. So there isn't a whole lot of case law this month to go through. But we are looking a bit at domestic abuse, um, sponsor licensing, and then going back to the courts with a few cases on procedure and compensation for delay. Um, To round off, there's a couple of positive developments on legal aid and leave to remain for people falsely accused of cheating in their English tests. Now, I always say at this point in the podcast that if you want to claim CPD for listening, then head over and sign up as a member. Um, You do that at freemovement.org.uk slash training. Um, Just to quickly flag up, it's the end of the CPD year approaching for solicitors. I think it's the end of October and for barristers at the end of December. Um, We've been commissioning courses over the last few months. We've got um, three new courses already available on tier two visas, um, international surrogacy cases and best practice in immigration caseworking. And we've got um, two more incoming on advising employers and on lawyer ethics. And as with um, the blog posts, blog posts over the last couple of years, we're widening the pool of authors of training courses. So this this latest batch are by a variety of different people, including Karma Hickman of Bishop and Sewell, Joe Hunt of Lewis Silkin, Amy Higgins of the Anti-Trafficking and Labour Exploitation Unit, and Chris Cole, formerly of Parker Rhodes Hickman's. Right. Okay, we've done that. So let's get started properly on um, what happened in August. Over to you, CJ. Thanks, Colin. Well plugged. Uh, We have some new figures in August on the EU settlement scheme, and they show that there's a a still quite small but growing number of people who aren't getting the right to stay in the UK after Brexit, either because they're being refused outright or because their application is void or invalid. Or withdrawn. So there's now 50,000 negative results overall, still a tiny fraction of the 3.4 million positive results, people being granted status. But there is one group that's actually more likely than not to be refused under the settlement scheme, and that is Zambrano carers. So these are non-EU citizens whose right to be in the UK relies on the EU court decision in the case of Zambrano. And so far, around 1,300 Zambrano applications have been decided under the EU settlement scheme, and 61% have been refused. What's going on there, do you think? Yeah, it's the Home Office doing what the Home Office does, isn't it? Um, They've never liked Zambrano. They've come up with all sorts of legal wheezes for limiting its scope. Um, But this is kind of the end game, I I suppose. Um, And it's it's a really good example of the Home Office and ministers and, and perhaps civil servants really, to my mind, not really thinking through the consequences of their actions because, the, and this is one of the things I bang on about in in the book Welcome to Britain. You know, these these people who are being refused now, which is 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 very concerning, they're not going to be forced out of the UK. They're just going to stay here in abject poverty and in an awfully vulnerable, exploitable position um, without any status. Um, we're talking about British children who are going to be growing up in, in, the, in that environment. Um, and th- so they're not, they're not being removed or forced out. They're just sort of here amongst us. And, and what, on earth is the, what on earth is the point of that? How, how does that help anybody in public policy terms? It's just absolutely nuts. Um, and it's the Home Office kind of following this approach of you know, applying the rules no matter what the uh, ultimate consequence of that uh, of that's going to be so and this is really 
disappointing and extremely concerning as well because you know the, these are these are real people who are who are going to be really badly affected by these decisions with no apparent hope of 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 coming back into lawful status and being regularized in the future well said also on the settlement scheme i guess a more positive slant uh, august was the month where there was the new scheme for family members of people from northern ireland are now within the the settlement scheme so basically if you're a non-eu citizen in a long-term relationship with a British or Irish person born in Northern Ireland, you can now come to live with your partner uh, in the UK for free via the settlement scheme rather than getting an expensive uh, spouse or partner visa. Uh, so to put it another way, people from Northern Ireland are now treated as EU citizens for family reunion purposes. Uh, and that kicked in on the 24th of August. And we just wanted to highlight a helpful overview in mercifully plain English uh, on the website of the Northern Ireland Human Rights Commission, uh, written by your fellow barrister, Alison Harvey. I, I don't know if you had a chance to read the briefing. I just thought it was really a really handy overview. I haven't taken a look at it. I mean, you know, religiously following the free movement coverage, obviously. Um, but um, no, this is, this is really great news for those people. And I, I wish it was wider. <laughs> I wish it wasn't just those in Northern Ireland. But um um, no, this is this is really good news for that group of people. But of course, they've got to make the application. They've got to do something about it because there is a deadline. It is going to pass eventually, um, and, and so people need to get on with it if if they're going to take advantage of these new rules. Yeah, I think it's time limited, so it'll be the same deadline as the general settlement scheme, the thirtieth of June next year. Uh, and relatedly, just a, uh, another thing to highlight: there's a change in benefits rules recently again targeted at these family members of people from Northern Ireland, basically allowing them to claim benefits once they're here under the settlement scheme. Uh, those are the snappily named Social Security Income Related Benefits Persons of Northern Ireland Family Members Amendment Regulations 2020. Uh, have a look if relevant. Let's move on to the first of our uh, cases from this month. We previously covered a case about when people's asylum records can be disclosed by order of the family courts. And the High Court had previously found that this can happen in certain circumstances, and the Court of Appeal now has basically agreed with that finding. The Court of Appeal judgment says that, quote, the judge must conduct a balancing exercise having regard to the competing EC ECHR rights, end quote. Uh, the case citation H, a child disclosure of asylum documents, 2020 EWCA Civ 1. Zero zero one, and I think like that outcome might worry some refugees. Maybe if they think that their sensitive records can be handed over if they're in a family court dispute, should people worry? Yeah, I have to be a little bit careful about what I say about this one. I think I've told you actually. I'm, I've been briefed as a junior in an appeal to the Supreme Court on this one, so it's not necessarily the last word, and it's the sort of issue that might well end up going to the Supreme Court. Um, so. And we'll be able to sort of update people if there are any developments on that. But yeah, if, if you look at this as an, as an asylum lawyer, it just looks absolutely extraordinary that um, you, you could have the records of an asylum claim disclosed, not just disclosed, but also disclosed to the alleged persecutor. Um, but, um, you know, in family law, it's, it's not actually that unusual. You know, I, I, when I was um, at my first chambers, a place called Renaissance Chambers, um, we used to do quite a lot of family law, and as a pupil, I used, used to get sent along to um, Crown Court to um, help with the disclosure of social services records in, in of, of a alleged victim in in criminal cases, where um, basically the defendant wanted to cross examine on the basis of 
you know, arguably irrelevant social services, sort of past complaints and things like that. Um, and, and, you know, the family courts are used to dealing with these, these kinds of issues. They consider it to be a, a straightforward balancing exercise and, and the Court of Appeal kind of upheld that approach here. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's a bit of a kind of conflict, really, between the world view of an, uh, of an asylum lawyer and, and a family lawyer. Um, but, um, yeah, it, it's, it's worth emphasizing, I think, that it, it is a very unusual set of facts here. So this is a case that got started as an international child abduction case, essentially. Uh, the mother had arrived. Um, I'm not saying anything I shouldn't hear. I don't think I said I wouldn't say very much about this. I'm sort of talking about it a lot. Um, but yeah, this is obviously public record. This exactly, um, yeah. the um, the the mother arrived and claimed asylum with a child with her, um, and then um, the, the 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 father eventually found out where she was and was able to establish some kind of contact um, through lawyers. Doesn't know her her exact location. Um, because of the extraordinary powers that the um, the authorities have in child abduction cases, and it's kind of morphed into more conventional family law proceedings now. Um, so it's it's a it's a very unusual situation, and yes, it is naturally concerning for for asylum seekers and refugees that their what they say in an asylum claim might potentially be disclosed. But you know, don't get too anxious about it. It, it is a very unusual set of circumstances here. Next, there is a case about children in care. So going from, I suppose, private family law to public family law. Social workers can apply for British citizenship for foreign national children who are in the care system. And very often, social workers should do that, or the child might run into trouble when they grow up, might face deportation uh, for lack of citizenship. And there's many real-world examples where that has happened. Uh, but there are also uh, apparently uh, more rare cases where it would be detrimental to get British, British citizenship for a child in care, particularly where they might lose their original citizenship. And that was the case uh, in this these proceedings because you had here uh, Indian children in the care system and India does not allow dual citizenship, so they would have lost their Indian nationality. Uh, so the situation came before the Court of Appeal and it found that social workers should apply to the court in such circumstances or have the permission of the parents if they want to proceed with the British um, citizenship application. The case is called Why Children in Care Change of Nationality 2020 EWCA Civ 1038. Yeah, it's it's not that unusual, I suppose, because there are quite a few countries um, that have rules against dual citizenship and um, a sort of subset, significant subset, I think, of those countries that have those kind of rules will automatically take citizenship away if somebody acquires citizenship of another state. So it, I don't think it's that unusual, actually. And I wouldn't say it's ever necessarily detrimental to a child to acquire British citizenship, but it, it is a profound consequence for them to lose their um, nationality of birth. And, you know, of course, the, the parents might well have something to um, say about that. And, um, you know, it, it could have a, a quite an important future impact on the care of that that child as well depending on whether they might go back to the country of origin or or, or something of those um or something of that nature um you know it's not it's not unheard of for example for a kinship carer to be found in the country of origin if it, if a ch- child is in care and to be placed abroad which becomes impossible 
if they've lost the nationality of that country in the meantime or something like that. So it is something that local authorities have to be really careful about. I would just hope this doesn't stop them from actually registering children they should be registering because, you know, I, I don't know, I'd go as far as to say, you know, as a rule, there should be a presumption that local authorities really ought to be properly safeguarding the long-term status of children by getting them registered as British. But of course, they really do have to be careful about this as well. And it's, it's a, that's really difficult for social workers and for local authorities because they're not, you know, they're not very clued up on the citizenship laws of other countries around the world and, and so on. And, and frankly, neither are immigration lawyers in the UK necessarily. We know a lot about UK law. We don't necessarily know a lot about you know, laws of other countries. So this, this highlights that, you know, this is a complex situation, but that's not an excuse or sort of get out for not dealing with it and for burying one's heads in the sand. Absolutely. Although you could, uh, it's understandable that child protection social workers have an awful lot on their plates without <laughs> British and international nationality law coming into it. Uh, yeah, and you can imagine they'll be sort of tearing their tearing their hair out looking at this. It's like you know everybody's been telling us we need to be doing this, and now people are saying we don't always need to be doing this. This is this is a bit complicated, and and, and it is absolutely. Next up, there was a really interesting article by Salaiha Ali about help for migrant victims of domestic abuse. And there is a sort of general rule that migrants who suffer domestic abuse and have to leave their partner as a result, they can get help from the immigration system so that they don't have to stay with an abuser for fear of the immigration consequences. And there's what's called the domestic violence concession, which is a sort of short-term fix and also provision under the immigration rules for victims to get indefinite leave to remain, the, the long-term fix. But the problem that Salaiha identifies in her article is that to avail of this system, your last grant of leave must be as a spouse or a partner. So if you had any other kind of leave before applying for these domestic abuse schemes, the Home Office uh, can say no and, and does say no. As we know, I mean, it's not hypothetical because the article was actually inspired by a reader who wrote in to say that this is exactly what happened to him. He'd been refused refused on the domestic abuse provisions because he was on discretionary leave. And he qualified, he says, in every other way except the, his exact status. So it's, it's an interesting issue just on an intellectual level, but it's also very sad for victims, I suppose. Yeah, and, and the example that's that's given, the, the gentleman who had discretionary leave, he had been on a spouse visa, and the Home Office, in recognition of the, the really bad situation he found himself, had then granted him discretionary leave with the effect that they then refused his uh, his application under this concession later, which is just absolutely nuts. It's a, it's a really good example of how sort of perverse that, that kind of rule can be. Um, so no, it's a, it's a really bad rule, and it's a group of people who really need the help and protection of the state. And so um, it's very welcome to see this being this being highlighted. Another thing... I wanted to get your thoughts on before we go back to our case law is um, a complete change of direction, but it's to do with sponsor licensing. And I looked uh, this month at the number of business businesses that have a sponsor license, i.e. home office permission to recruit from overseas. There was a school of thought that the number of sponsor licenses would explode because of Brexit. Um, lots of companies who at the moment rely on EU workers would realize hang on, I'll need to sponsor them in future, so I'd better get a license by um, Brexit Day in January 2021. Um, but what the figures show is that doesn't really seem to be happening. There's been a rise of 3% in the number of businesses with a sponsor license from the second quarter of 2019 to the second quarter of 2020, so kind of prime Brexit 
discussion period, I suppose. And 3% doesn't seem very much to me. Uh, I wonder, you know, what you thought, like, and maybe the reasons why it's not bigger. Like, is the message not going through the companies or is it maybe coronavirus just means people aren't going to be recruiting from overseas anyway or, or what? Well, much more importantly than that, is it a three percentage point increase or a three percent increase, CJ? A three percent. <laughs> Which is tiny then, basically. We're talking tiny. Um, yeah, it's not exactly a stampede of people getting ready for Brexit, is it? Um, I, I suppose one would hope that more employers would be getting sponsor licenses, but one wouldn't necessarily expect it to be happening um, because people just don't realise. Uh, people have got no idea. Um I, I, I haven't seen any analysis or data from the Home Office or anywhere else about how many employers um, who would previously have had um, EU workers um, and don't don't already have a sponsor license for employing non-EU workers. I, I, maybe that's a relatively small number. I don't I, I don't know. Um, but um, you know, this certainly doesn't look like people being Brexit ready in immigration law terms. Yeah, absolutely. Let's go to our case law again. There's an interesting Scottish decision where a Nigerian lady won the right to stay in the UK following an appeal, but it then took the Home Office 15 months to issue her with uh, documentation uh, so she could prove that right to stay. And in the meantime, that meant she couldn't work or claim benefits. There was no real dispute, I think, that the Home Office was in the wrong, that it just by accident or design, a 15-month delay was a, was a total mistake. But the question was, could this lady get compensation? And she argued there was a private law duty of care. She could sue civilly, have a civil claim for damages. But the Court of Session found that her remedies here were judicial review or a complaint to the parliamentary ombudsman. And she'd come nowhere near establishing that there was a private law right to damages here. The case Advocate General for Scotland and Ad- at the Yuku 2020 uh, CSIH 47 uh, Court of Session in our house. So just, just really difficult to see the Home Office is the message from that, is it? Yeah, and it turns out that's in Scotland as well as England and Wales, because I mean, certainly in England and Wales, we, we know that there have been, you know, there's previous authority on this that, that, that makes it very clear that it's almost impossible to sue the Home Office. Um, you, your best bet is is potentially some sort of human rights um, claim and and that's virtually impossible. You know, it's it's almost nobody I think has succeeded on that ground. Um, fail, fallback would be parliamentary ombudsman, but as Bilal says, that's that's quite hit and miss. They they do um, order compensation in some cases, the ombudsman, but but it's you know only a handful of cases every year. Um, it does make me think of. Um, I, I wonder if there's any equivalent in Scotland to the England and Wales tort of conversion, which is effectively a kind of civil theft um because there was a, a really in- interesting immigration case god it's been like 10 years back or something like that uh, about a sri lankan gentleman who had um uh that the entry clearance officer i think it was had retained his passport his sri lankan passport which had caused him to lose earnings and had done so for a long time and he had repeatedly asked for it back and um he he actually had a successful claim for damages um but you know the, the, that was a slightly unusual sort of set of circumstances. But um, um, that, that that could arise, and I, whether there is an equivalent in Scotland, I have absolutely no idea. But it's it's one of those things that it, it's worth thinking about. Of course, it's also it's just like people think that law is a solution to their woes, and it it often isn't. And you know, if you can get compensation for this kind of stuff, it's often going to be little real 
compensation in a non-monetary sense you know you know it's not a win as such um and people are often better just trying to get on with their lives rather than um sort of refighting a battle that they've they've already won um so it's um yeah it's not a surprising outcome from a kind of england and wales lawyer perspective um but you know where a client really is hell-bent on trying to do something about losses like this um that their options are pretty limited Absolutely. Definitely worth emphasizing, even if not a new, a new point. A couple of procedural cases. We have confirmation that out-of-country appeals by video link, so when someone's removed from the UK and has to zoom in for their appeal after the fact, um, that setup is not a breach of EU data protection law. There was a uh, perhaps creative argument uh, that it was a breach of GDPR uh, that failed in the upper tribunal and it's also been rejected now by the Court of Appeal. Uh, the case is Johnson 2020 EWCA Civ 1032. There is also a case on the slip rule and this is the procedure for correcting an obvious error in a written judgment. So where the judge clearly means to rule one way and then accidentally finds for the wrong side essentially. And this slip rule can also be used where there's a, such an error in a permission to appeal ruling as well as in a substantive judgment. The upper tribunal has published a lengthy ruling explaining how what the procedure is for the slip rule in the context of permission to appeal. Uh, so consultative relevant, I want to read out the, the head note. Uh, citation, Ali, permission decisions, errors, slip rule, Pakistan, 2020, UKUT 249 IAC. We also wanted to mention an interesting development in uh, English language cheating cases, these TOEIC cases they're sometimes called, or ETS cases, um, where there was cheating on English visa tests and many innocent people were caught up in the Home Office reaction to what undoubtedly was a real problem, but it it was an over-the-top response. The law firm Bindemans has been involved in some of this litigation and they've got a commitment from the Home Office that if someone wins a TOEIC appeal based on their Article 8 rights, they will get two and a half years of leave. Previously, apparently, that hadn't been happening to successful appellants and Bindemans had a client who uh, won his appeal but got 60 days leave, uh, which seems uh, very petty. Yeah, and uh, I, I, before we go further, I think it's Bindman's. Oh, well, do you... I think I think it's Bindman's, not Bindman's. <laughs> you're, you're probably right. Yeah, yeah. Um, but um, yeah, I know. Bizarre that the Home Office would react to to something like that. Well, I say bizarre. I mean, it's not really. Is it? You sort of come to expect it from the Home Office, but sixty days obviously wasn't a an appropriate or, in fact, lawful reaction to um, to what had gone on. So, you know, it's, it's a very welcome outcome, and um, it's important to sort of publicise this sort of thing. Because there's no um, case to circulate or whatever, everybody needs to know about it um, in order to take advantage of it. So yeah, that, that's it's important to flag up. Uh, congratulations to Bindman's, as I shall now refer them. Uh, and to round off with another piece of good news, uh, legal aid. The government has dropped the highly controversial uh, legal aid changes that it brought in to accompany online immigration appeals, and we are now getting hourly rates pending a proper consultation. There were, I think, two or three judicial review challenges to these legal aid regulations, uh, including one uh, led by Duncan Lewis, and the Ministry of Justice has now accepted the thrust of those challenges that there was a unlawful lack of consultation in making those regulations 
which is uh, excellent news, I think. Yes, good news, and um, well done to them for um, acting as activist lawyers and and bringing that claim. So, on that note, I think that wraps things up for this month, and we'll be back next month. Goodbye.